Um, so yeah, today we will be walking through the book of Amos. Um, so last week George got to show off his vacation pictures. <laughs> so of course I had to one-up him and show off my vacation yes. pictures too. Um, so this is actually uh, in Patagonia. Is that you on the horse? In Chile. That is not me on the horse. That's the shepherd. You're one of the sheep. Uh, I, I was in a car driving. We, we were leaving Torres del Paine, which is the like national park with the big kind of. They call them the horns. Y'all probably have seen pictures of it. Where did it. you say it was? Torres del Paine. It's in Patagonia, down at the tip of South America. Um, and so we're driving. We're leaving the park, and there's just this herd of sheep just walking down the highway. And so we just stop the car, and they kind of split and move around us, and then we keep going. Um, but the reason I want to include that was, A, first to show off, since George got to show off um, <laughs> pictures in Petra, but also because Amos is a shepherd. Um, so verse 1, it says, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa. Later on, he's talking to Amaziah, who's one of the high priests of Bethel. And Bethel is... Um, in the northern kingdom, kind of the religious center. And, um, you know, by high priest, not high priest of Yahweh, right? Um, Not sure if it was Baal or Asherah or what, you know, pagan deity, probably several, multiple ones. Um, But Amaziah tells um, Amos, hey, you need to quit prophesying. You're, you know, ruining the whole thing. And he says, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. And basically saying, I'm not of this prophetic class, you know. And when you kind of think of probably someone like Amaziah is more like one of Pharaoh's magicians, kind of like, um, or one of, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's kind of. They're more advising the court and, you know, doing signs and kind of... Um, What's sort of like Sears, right? And so he's from Tekoa, which is a town, a small little village south of Jerusalem um, in Judah, but his prophetic mission was in the northern kingdom. Um, so he was kind of an outsider coming from the south up to the northern kingdom. And just something important to note about shepherds, right? Um, shepherds aren't, you know, aren't the most wealthy, powerful people, right? They're living out on the margins, in the hills, um, the scrubland, the desert, the places that aren't good for agriculture. Because if you have rich soil, you're going to plant, you know, all kinds of crops and vineyards and stuff there. And so they're out in the hills, you know, outskirts, kind of the margins of society. Usually um, the shepherds aren't the ones who own the sheep, right? You have someone wealthy back in the city, and they own, you know, 4,000 head of sheep. Right, and then they have hired hands who live out um, in the hills who actually tend the sheep. Um, so just kind of thinking um, how that works. So our context, of course, is the divided kingdom. Amos, um, right after that line, it says during the reign of Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam the second of Israel, and so they both um, almost mirrored each other exactly in their reigns um, for about 40 years. And this was kind of like the peak um, since Solomon. This is like Israel was the strongest. 
They just defeated Aram, the Arameans, um, up here in Damascus, modern-day Syria. And there was peace between Israel and Judah. So it was a relative time of peace. It also dates itself as saying two years after the earthquake. There's the earthquake of Hezekiah, um, or not of Hezekiah, I guess of Jeroboam, but an earthquake that happened in 762 B.C. And so this probably would have been 760 would be the most accurate date of this, uh, which makes this the first prophetic book to be written in one of the oldest books of the Bible. Um, This is before Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the other minor prophets. Amos is probably the first. Um, And most of the other books um, that are set in older times were kind of the oral traditions passed down that were later recorded after this. So this is a very, very old text. We didn't do it first. Hmm. We didn't choose to do that one first. Yeah, I don't know why, but... Um, so so our, some more context, right? You have, again, this economic stratification that's happening as new classes are developing. Um, this new economic system that's arising in the ancient Near East around this time, time of the prophets, right? Things like money, property, and debt are becoming uh, increasingly legalized, right? So there's this whole legal structure that enforces these things um, and is becoming like an integral part of the economy. And you see this both in the text and archaeologically, the stratification, where um, in chapter 3 it talks about the summer homes and winter homes, people who have, you know, a house to go in the summer and a house to go in the winter. And we can think of King Ahab, right, who had his house in Samaria and then one in Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, and then his wife um, Jezebel actually had Naboth killed in order to get that nice, you know, I don't know if it was a winter home or a summer home, but a second home for the king. I guess the palace wasn't big enough. It also mentions houses of ivory. Here we see an ivory um, carving from Samaria um, that dates roughly to this time. And there's this um, somewhat sexist uh, um, allegory, metaphor, cows of Bashan. Bashan is this very, like, rich agricultural region, and so um, it's using cows to refer to women. Um, One of of my my, uh, Old Testament professors said it could be translated as ladies of Gucci. So, like, this very luxurious um, life. And so in the archaeological evidence in the, the town of Terzo, which is kind of a little bit outside of Samaria, um, but it's preserved pretty well in a big tail, a big huge um, pile, basically. In the 9th century, it was a pretty prosperous city, and most of the houses are pretty well constructed. There might be some that are bigger, some that are smaller, but there's somewhat some kind of equality, right? Um, but in the 700s, in the 8th century you begin to see evidence of uneven distribution of wealth. So there's very large houses that are well-built, well-maintained, and then other areas that are just basically poorly built shacks around. So again, we see this, this stratification going on during this time. So the text itself, it starts out with the oracles against the eight nations, 
and then addresses different women, I mean, different groups in Israel, so women of Samaria, rich people of Samaria, rich people of Jerusalem. And then at the end, it has these five visions that Amos has of God. And then there's a final epilogue. And if you all have been following along in the class, I bet you can guess what the epilogue says. Does anyone have a guess how it ends? It ends with, okay, yeah, all this horrible judgment and damnation is going to happen, but I will preserve a remnant of Israel, right? Just about every one of these books, it's doom, gloom, judgment, and then in the last couple of verses is, but, 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 I'm still going to keep my promises. You know, God is still going to keep his promises to the people of Israel and um, yeah. So these oracles at the beginning um, are kind of like war crimes. They're like, so I, this map's kind of hard to see. I found a website where you can like make Bible maps and put in certain things. Um, so it was, it was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, there you see Tekoa is right there, a little bit south of Jerusalem, and then Bethel where Amos. So he's all kind of right in the middle there. Um, but these things, so God is, it follows this pattern um, in the first two and a half chapters where it names the nation and it names their sin, which generally is some kind of war crime, something that we would like think under international law, kind of big picture stuff. Um, says, I will consume your citadel of fire, usually names the capital city of, of that nation, and then um, names a couple different cities or valleys or geographical places and basically says, I'm going to cut off your people from their land and cities. So it starts with Damascus up north um, because they threshed Gilead. Gilead is this region right here. And here you can see Bashan. I was mentioning that kind of Gucci <laughs> area. They threshed Gilead with a sharp iron. Um, Philistines deported an entire population to Edom, so they're down here in Gaza, um, then back up to Tyre, the Phoenician city-states. They also deported population to Edom, so I guess Edom was kind of this, these slave traders down there. And then back down to Edom, who pursued his brother with the sword. Um, Ammon, Ammon, who ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead to enlarge its borders. Whether that is being literal, they actually did that, or it's using a metaphor to talk about, you know, um, oppressing the people of that land. And then finally, Moab, who burned the bones of the king of Edom with blind. Did someone, was, someone I said either way, whether it's allegory or... Really, yeah, it's, it's, still <laughs> it's still bad. Yeah, very vivid language. Um, and so if you follow the pattern that's happening... <clears throat> You know, if you're an Israelite or a Judahite at this time, you're like, yeah, you tell them, God, that's right, they're bad. And, you know, but you notice it goes here, 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 here. And it's kind of like forming this circle, this target slowly around, and then it gets real. <laughs> and it's like, oh, crap, now you're talking about us. And so for most of those, they just mention one sin, and it's very this kind of legal, international law kind of stuff. Um, so it says, calls out Judah, who rejected the Lord and did not keep his statues. And then there's four main sins that God um, accuses Israel of. 
So the first one is they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. Um, there's some, you know, archaeological evidence that you could sell a slave for about 10 shekels um, or in an old French dress for 7 shekels. So, like, this might not be an actual um, hyperbole. <laughs> like, there might have been times where you could have sold someone for the price of a pair of sandals um, for a couple of shekels. Also, it was illegal to, you know, man-stealing, right? Kidnapping someone and selling them into slavery was illegal. But what was legal is if someone says, hey, I need some money, you say, sure, I'll give you money, charge super high rates of interest, wait for them to default, and then you can take them and sell them to someone else as a slave uh, for their debts. It also talks about crushing the heads of the poor and pushing the needy aside. Um, father and son who enter the same girl. Some interpretations think this is, refers to like cult prostitutes as an act of worshipping um, pagan deities. But the word um, girl that's used is usually referred to with servants. Um, so it's probably more referring to this power imbalance, right, where you have the father and the son, you're kind of the, um, like the paterfamilia, right, the, the head of the household, um, who are basically raping their servant girls, right. Um, and then finally, drinking the wine of indemnity in the temple of God. And so this is most likely wine that was offered in payment of debt or fine. And so you're using this kind of not really not blood money, but like blood wine, and drinking it in God's temple. Um, and kind of at the end of this, God is like, did I not defeat those giant Amorites? <laughs> you remember how tall those dudes were way back after I brought you out of Egypt? Um, just like, again, saying, this is all I did for you, and yet you still act this way. Is this the first prophet to talk to both Judah and Israel? Well, this is the first prophet. So, yes. Um, some of them are... I don't know, dude. I, I feel like a lot of them mention... And of course the ones that are after 720 when Assyria, when Samaria falls are just going to be talking to Judah. Because Israel doesn't exist anymore. Um, so here, surprise, surprise, more of Israel's sins. Um, God again says... And I'm using the y'all version that, you know, I, I love so much. Uh, y'all only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish y'all for y'all's iniquities. Right? Um, and so it's kind of, you know, like when someone picks on your brother, you're like, no, but only I get to pick on my, like, you know, God's like, you're my people. So I'm holding you to a much higher standard. And God says that your citadels will be looted. The horns of the altars of Bethel will be cut off. Here we can kind of see an altar in the northern kingdom um, that was used to um, worship pagan deities. I know that, um, was it Molech? Yeah, Molech, they would actually sacrifice their children. And they would, they would kind of have its hands and they would set them on the hands of the statue and then burn them. Um, so, you know, this cutting off the horns, and there you can see the horns it's talking about. God says, I will smite the winter houses and the summer houses, the houses of ivory. And this is when it mentions the cows of Bashan, right, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. And it basically talks about them going to their husbands and wanting more drink and more, you know, 
more luxury, right? Is the Horns of Walter, is that a, I may be reaching too much, but is that <laughs> a freedom? Like, I'm releasing the people who are being sacrificed, I'm releasing them? It could be. The horns? Yeah, no. I, I think that's a great interpretation. Um, I, I don't know. And then also, you know, God says, I sent locusts, I sent floods, I sent all these, like, little things, little, right, to try to make you repent, to try to, like, call you to action. Um, but you did not repent. So kind of the scary verse is, so prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Uh, which as I'm reading this, you know, I'm just getting more and more scared. It's a very, um, it's a very powerful text, Amos is, for us living in America today. Surprise, surprise, more sins. Um, so at the beginning of chapter 5, it talks about one-tenth will be less. So if there's a city of 10,000, there'll be a thousand left. If there's a city of 100, 10 will be left. Um, and God says, seek me that you may live, not Bethel. You know, being this religious kind of pagan center, um, there's, no, there's no salvation in Bethel. Um, God says, therefore, because y'all impose heavy rents on the poor and extract a tribute of grain from them, though y'all have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet y'all will not live in them, y'all have planted pleasant vineyards, yet y'all will not drink their wine. Right, so they're building all these nice luxury houses. They aren't even living in them. They're just standing vacant, right? Um, and in the end of the chapter, you see some. Well, yeah, you see this language around the gate, and so you turn aside the poor in the gate. Um, it says, "Seek good and not evil, that y'all may live." So first, seek me. But then, what does seeking me look like? Is seeking good and not evil. Um, hate evil, love good, and establish justice at the gate. So instead of casting away the poor at the gate, you're establishing justice at the gate. And then maybe, just maybe, if you do these things, then the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And now we have a day of the Lord, right? We've learned about the day of the Lord in a lot of these prophetic texts, and it's usually a good thing, right? It's all the nations coming together and kind of this new Jerusalem, this new holy city, um, but not for Amos. Amos says, alas, y'all who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to y'all? It will be a day of darkness, not light. And so basically saying, yeah, Israel, y'all are hoping for this day of the Lord. Uh, y'all shouldn't be hoping for it, because it's going to be really bad for you. Um, he... <laughs> It says it's like someone who runs away from the lion only to be eaten by a bear. Mm -hmm. um, someone who runs away from the bear only to be bitten by the snake. Um, and this kind of idea of you're out of the frying pan into the fire, right? And it's after this that our famous um, line that was most of us known from uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech, I Have a Dream, right, where he says, let justice roll um, like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream because I hate your worship. You know, you're doing all this worship and you're not doing justice. Um, 
So woe to those who are at ease in Zion and Samaria. So now we're throwing Jerusalem in too with Zion. It's not just Israel. Um, so those who lounge on beds of ivory and couches, eat delicious food, it mentions lamb, and drink fine wines, they anoint themselves with oil, they listen to beautiful music, right? Um, sorry, Jacob, but I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his sinnacles. When I was reading that one, I was like, oh, crap, you're coming for me, God. Amen. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have definitely, reading this passage, really gotten me. Um, and I, I like this language a lot. Y'all have turned justice into poison. Right? And so this thing that's supposed to be good, again, it's like this ever-flowing stream, is now poison. Alright, and we're not going to spend a lot of time with the final three chapters, just because... Cool. We're, we're doing pretty good. Um, so there's those visions, a uh, consuming locust swarm, a consuming fire, a plumb line that God is using to measure Israel, finding them wanting, and then this basket of fruit that is quickly devoured up, right? So kind of consumed back, basket of fruit. And then we have the ending in chapter 9. Um, that In that day I will rise up the fallen booth of David, which is interesting because usually it's the house of David, right? But it's the Hebrew word that's used is kind of like a little shack or a little little hut, little hut right? And so it's kind of saying that, yeah, there's going to be one tenth remaining. You know, I'm going to destroy so much of it. But the little hut of the house of David that remains, uh, I'll wall up its breaches. I'll also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Um, they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. So we finally see this kind of all the nations coming together in this new holy city. And it ends with declares the Lord who does this. Um, so quickly, relationship with the rest of the Bible. Uh, most scholars think that Isaiah um, was pretty familiar with this text when he was doing his ministry um, about a generation and a half later. And so if you look at some of these texts, um, if you're interested, you can kind of compare those passages in Amos 5 to Isaiah 1 and Amos 4 with Isaiah 9 and 3. And you see some, that seems like Isaiah is citing um, Amos. And also direct citations we see in the New Testament is Amos 3 is cited in um, Revelation, which makes sense because both of these are very prophetic um, texts. And then also Amos 5 and 9 are cited in Acts 7 and 15. Um, so yeah. And if y'all, you know, want to take a picture or look into that more, you can. Alright, so now our modern context. And I wanted to show this video before... Um, we have our discussions that just kind of explains, it's, it's based off of this Harvard study, that's what people think the wealth distribution in our country is, what they think would be ideal, and what the actual reality is, um, which is, it's really sobering. A chart I saw recently that I can't get out of my head. A Harvard business professor and economist asked more than 5,000 Americans, 
how they thought wealth was distributed in the United States. This is what they said they thought it was. Dividing the country into five rough groups of the top, bottom, and middle three 20% groups, they asked people how they thought the wealth in this country was divided. Then he asked them what they thought was the ideal distribution. And 92%, that's at least nine out of 10 of them, said it should be more like this. In other words, more equitable than they think it is. Now that fact is telling, admittedly, the notion that most Americans know that the system is already skewed unfairly. But what's most interesting to me is the reality compared to our perception. The ideal is as far removed from our perception of reality as the actual distribution is from what we think exists in this country. So ignore the ideal for a moment. Here's what we think it is again. And here is the actual distribution. Shockingly skewed. Not only do the bottom 20% and the next 20%, the bottom 40% of Americans barely have any of the wealth. I mean, it's hard to even see them on the chart. But the top 1% has more of the country's wealth than 9 out of 10 Americans believe the entire top 20% should have. Mind-blowing. But let's look at it another way, because I find this chart kind of difficult to wrap my head around. Instead, let's reduce the 311 million Americans to just a representative 100 people. Make it simple. Here they are. Teachers, coaches, firefighters, construction workers, engineers, doctors, lawyers, some investment bankers, a CEO, maybe a celebrity or two. Now let's line them up according to their wealth. Poorest people on the left, wealthiest on the right, just a steady row of folks based on their net worth. We'll color code them like we did before based on which 20% quintile they fall into. Now, let's reduce the total wealth of the United States, which was roughly $54 trillion in 2009, to this symbolic pile of cash. And let's distribute it among our 100 Americans. Well, here's socialism. All the wealth of the country distributed equally. We all know that won't work. We need to encourage people to work and work hard to achieve that good old American dream and keep our country moving forward. So, here's that ideal we asked everyone about. Something like this curve. This isn't too bad. We've got some incentive, as the wealthiest folks are now about 10 to 20 times better off than the poorest Americans. But hey, even the poor folks aren't actually poor, since the poverty line has stayed almost entirely off the chart. We have a super healthy middle class with a smooth transition into wealth. And yes, Republicans and Democrats alike chose this curve. Nine out of 10 people, 92%, said this was a nice, ideal distribution of America's wealth. But let's move on. This is what people think America's wealth distribution actually looks like. Not as equitable, clearly. But for me, even this still looks pretty great. Yes, the poorest 20 to 30 percent are starting to suffer quite a lot compared to the ideal, and the middle class is certainly struggling more than they were, while the rich and wealthy are making roughly a hundred times that of the poorest Americans, and about ten times that of the still healthy middle class. Sadly, this isn't even close to the reality. Here is the actual distribution of wealth in America. The poorest Americans don't even register they're down to pocket change, and the middle class is barely distinguishable from the poor. In fact, even the rich between the top 10 and 20 percentile are worse off 
Only the top 10% are better off. And how much better off? So much better off that the top 2 to 5% are actually off the chart at this scale. And the top 1%, this guy, well, his stack of money stretches 10 times higher than we can show. Here's his stack of cash, restacked, all by itself. This is the top 1% we've been hearing so much about. So much green in his pockets that I have to give him a whole new column of his own because he won't fit on my chart. 1% of America has 40% of all the nation's wealth. The bottom 80%, 8 out of every 10 people, or 80 out of these 100, only has 7% between them. And this has only gotten worse in the last 20 to 30 years. While the richest 1% take home almost a quarter of the national income today, in 1976, they took home only 9%, meaning their share of income has nearly tripled in the last 30 years. The top 1% own half the country's stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. The bottom 50% of Americans own only half a percent of these investments, which means they aren't investing. They're just scraping by. I'm sure many of these wealthy people have worked very hard for their money. But do you really believe that the CEO is working 380 times harder than his average employee? Not his lowest paid employee, not the janitor, but the average earner in his company. The average worker needs to work more than a month to earn what the CEO makes in one hour. We certainly don't have to go all the way to socialism to find something that is fair for hardworking Americans. We don't even have to achieve what most of us consider might be ideal. All we need to do is wake up and realize that the reality in this country is not at all what we think it is. There's a chart I saw recently that I can't get out of my head. A Harvard... I don't love the music in that. Because <laughs> it's very like, ooh, doom and gloom, which, you know, yeah, there is some doom and gloom there. Um, but I just think that video is, and this video is about 10 years old. Um, you know, I, I looked it up real quick. Most recently it says that um, billionaires in our country's wealth has increased 62% um, since the pandemic. So basically in the past year and eight, nine months, I know my wealth has not increased 62%. That would be nice. Um, but so, you know, I'm sure if you did this video today, it would even be, um, be different. So, let's see, we got about, what, 10 minutes? Well, we got a lot of time for discussion. Um, let's break up into small groups. I think we have a big enough group, so if you want to do a, this side and this side... Um, and if y'all want to kind of read, this is the, you know, probably the most well-known passage in Amos, um, Amos 5, 21 through 24, and think about some of these questions. And then in about yeah, 10 minutes, we can meet back up and kind of talk in a big group. Does anyone have any questions about anything I know I went kind of fast over the Amos stuff. All right, let's let's discuss. <laughs> so what? Among the first to go into exile. Do y'all have any um, 
Anyone want to share something that was shared in your group that you thought was pretty insightful, pretty that the rest of the class should hear? Yeah, what did your group say? You're defending. I mean, basically, we just talked about how George should give us all his money. <laughs> you know, I talked to Getty or somebody about that one time. I went and said, You need to give your fair share. And so he says, Well, here's how many people are in the world. Here's what I have. Here you go. And it was like yeah. four cents or something. <laughs> so it's not just divide everything up and give it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of what Emily was talking about, of uh, the social wealth, of how we, we like to think about monetary health, wealth, but there's also a social component of who, people who we know, and that sometimes just, it's yes, we need to be aware of what we're, how we're giving money, but also be aware of the fact that there, there are people who are socially poor, and just helping them network and helping them get to know people mm-hmm. may get them in a better place and be just as helpful as if we just gave them a handout. Yeah. And also you have like the physical health aspect of that too. When you think about rising rates of suicide and drug overdoses and depression and anxiety, you know, might be kind of tied to some of the stuff where the poor becoming poor, you know, it's it's harder to, to make it by. And so like you also have the health aspects in addition to social and just like economic. It's all, all interrelated. And we also referenced uh, Josh's sermon of how we want to scapegoat that 1%. And we want to say this all their fault. If they would just do something mm-hmm. when we need to be able to look at our own selves and not just say it's up to them to redistribute that wealth. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice if they did. <laughs> all right. Well, next, or not next week, but. December 5th, I think, so two weeks from now, Emily is going to teach on Hosea, and then our last class on the 12th is going to be looking at the nativity in the prophets. So these things like the virgin birth, um, Bethlehem, and you know all these kind of different predictions that we think about the Christmas story, where they actually came from in the prophets and the history of that. So that means we're not meeting next Sunday? No, no, no classes next Sunday. Yeah. Thank you all for coming. Happy Thanksgiving. And happy Happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy your bowl full of wine.